especially on intermission Sunday, I can say we spent, uh, my wife and I spent maybe uh, four or five years here at North Wake, and every year intermission Sunday was the highlight of the year of our time at North Wake. Uh, we absolutely love it. We love North Wake. We love what a launching pad this church has been for decades, for sending church planters, for sending missionaries all over the country and all over the world. Um, you have a beautiful legacy. We see ourselves as an extension of the legacy of this church, of your legacy, um, and we are so grateful for that. Well, I have been invited to speak to you this morning about church planting, and I can tell you that the need for church planting is great everywhere that we look. In Greater Winston-Salem, which includes the village of Clemens, where we live, the population is currently 475,000 people with approximately 25% of those people saying that they are connected to a church of some kind in some way. So we put the bar really, really low, and 25% say they're connected to a church in some way. Just to keep up with population growth at a normative or average size church of 100 people, we would need to plant 125 new churches in greater Winston-Salem in the next 10 years, just to keep up with population growth. We want to increase the number of people who are connected to the church in our area, which I hope we do, if we wanted to increase that number by even just 1%, from 25% to 26%, we would need to plant 178 churches of 100 people in the next 10 years to make that dent. The need for church planting is great, but I can tell you this, the need for church planting is only great if that church planting actually results in reaching the lost and making disciples out of the harvest. Because, you see, there's other statistics that if we dig a little bit deeper, we find out that nearly 70% of our current churches are either plateaued or declining and are not making disciples and reaching the lost. In Clemens, in just the last four years, belief in Jesus as the only way of salvation has dropped by a full 15% of the population in just the last four years. At that rate of decline, the number of people who believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation in Clemens would hit zero in less than 10 years. That's the trajectory that we are currently on. Looked, looked at from this perspective, you realize that we are in a crisis where rather than reaching the lost and making disciples and making a dent in the harvest, we are losing ground. We believe this is not only a crisis, but it's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the church to reform and to ask God to do a fresh work, a new work among us. You see, what we, what we really need is to regain the eyes of Christ. Because when Christ looked across crowds of people 2,000 years ago in Israel, he looked and he saw a harvest that is plentiful. And he said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And that is still true of us and our communities today. You see, the call to church planting is not that we need more worship services. You see, the church is not just overflowing with way too many disciples and followers of Jesus, and we need more buildings with more seats so we can fit them in our worship services. That's not the call to church planting. The call to church planting is that there is a great harvest of people made in the image of God who need to have the arrival of God's kingdom announced to them in ways that they can see and hear understand and respond to. You see, Clemens doesn't need another worship service, church building, or Christian program. What Clemens needs is a movement of ordinary people who are challenged to follow Jesus with all that they are and are then mobilized to bring the light of the gospel where they live, work, and play. So our mission in Clemens is not just to plant a church, but is to equip and empower ordinary believers to be disciple makers. And I can tell you, we could drop into every town and city and community in North Carolina and, and pop up a church and put up signs and do marketing and invite people to come in, and we're not going to reach the lost and make disciples. We know that most of the time if you do that, you're actually attracting disgruntled church members from other churches. You're not reaching the lost and making an impact. So we know that the work of church planting is really rightly understood, just an extension of the work of disciple-making, an extension of the work of evangelism. But what we have found is that many believers, though they're 
aware of the Great Commission, and maybe even they feel a great deal of guilt about the existence of the Great Commission, they don't actually feel equipped and empowered to obey it themselves. And I'm right there with you, and I've been right there with you, and I'm often right there with you. You see, we as believers must be firmly rooted in our identity in Christ and keenly aware of the responsibility that God has given us to carry out His mission. But we also have to be aware that God has provided us everything that we need to carry it out. God has powerfully used truths in in Matthew 9.35 and following, which is where we'll be this morning. He's used truths in this passage and others to teach that to me, to teach that to our family. You see, there are truths here in our passage this morning that even with just the tiny mustard seed of faith that I'm often able to muster up to believe these truths, they, they have the power to make me feel bulletproof as an evangelist, as a disciple maker, and as a church planter. Not because of my abilities. I can tell you they're very small and scarce, few and far between. It's not because of my skills and abilities, but rather it's because of my confidence that God has provided everything that I need, and He has shown me how the story ends. There are elements in this passage that are specific to the particular time and context, and we'll observe some of those as we go. However, there's a question I want you to have kind of planted in your mind as we go through this text, and it's not the question of what applies to me and what doesn't. Rather, I want you to ask what your, your basic Bible study method instructs us to ask, which is, What does this text say about God, about who he is and what he is doing? And then what does this text say about what he is doing with us as human beings? I think you'll find that exercise worth your time. We begin in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and it says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When we catch up with Jesus here in uh, verse 35, we find Jesus doing what Jesus does, right? So Jesus is going around, he's going to all the towns and villages, and he's teaching, he's proclaiming, and he's healing. This is not the first time that Matthew has summarized Jesus' work in ministry this way. If you look at chapter 4, verse 23, right after Jesus calls his first disciples, it says that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Those are the exact same words as in our passage today. And this is really something of a formula for Matthew, how he concisely summarizes and expresses the work of Jesus. So we're going to break these three down real quick, just kind of see what is Jesus' ministry, because later we're going to find that he commissions us to extend the work of his ministry to the nations. So we're going to look at what his ministry consisted of, those three things of teaching, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease and affliction. So first, teaching in their synagogues. What was he doing there? Jesus was teaching the Old Testament to Jews and God-fearers in the synagogues. We see an example of this, a little snapshot, in the Gospel of Luke. So in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 22, it says that he came to Nazareth, the town that he grew up in, and it says, as was his custom, he did this on a regular basis, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stands up to read, and someone hands him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he, he... unrolls the scroll, and he finds a place where is written these words. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he he rolls the scroll back up, and he gives it to the attendant, and it says he sat down, and then he began to say to them, so he He teaches them, and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, here is Jesus teaching in the synagogue, and what he's teaching is that he has been, one, anointed to proclaim good news, and two, to heal every disease and affliction. 
So this just reinforces our understanding of Jesus' ministry was centered on these three things. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. After his resurrection, uh, we get even a bigger picture of uh, Jesus' teaching. We see on their road to Emmaus, if you're familiar with that story in Luke chapter 24. Jesus spoke to two men on the way and he said, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the script- from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So that's what Jesus' teaching in the synagogue looks like. It's showing from all of Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah who takes away the sin of the world. Second, we see that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So what does this look like? Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus is not primarily bringing some new religious idea or teaching. Rather, he is announcing the arrival of a kingdom. He is announcing the arrival of a kingdom that was prophesied from of old in the Old Testament and the Scriptures, and the arrival of a kingdom that is very, very good news for us as human beings. This is a consistent theme in Matthew. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist begins his ministry preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus begins his ministry right after the temptation in the desert, in the wilderness. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is here announcing the arrival of a kingdom. The work that God is doing through Jesus is the arrival of a kingdom. The arrival of that kingdom demands repentance from us as humanity, and the arrival of that kingdom is good news for us. The third thing that he's doing is healing. It says he's healing every type of disease and affliction. So what is this about? Well, in Jesus' ministry, healing and exorcism, or the casting out of demons or of spirits, acted as signs to demonstrate the arrival of that kingdom, and also to confirm the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, demonstrating his authority and his identity as the Son of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew, um, uh, Jesus explains this in Matthew uh, chapter 9, earlier in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, uh, But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So the healing serves to demonstrate Jesus' identity as the Messiah and his authority to free us from our sins. That is how the healings and exorcisms function. But they also demonstrate that the arrival of this kingdom is going to reshape and remake humanity and all creation, and that is very good news for a broken and fallen world marred by sin, suffering, violence, and disease. The fact that the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus is going to remake and refashion those things is very, very good news. So after summarizing Jesus' ministry this way, it says that when Jesus saw the crowds... The crowds of people attracted by the beauty of this ministry that he's doing, he had compassion for them. Speaking of good news, this is, this is good news for us, right? Jesus looks at the mass of humanity, which is us, in all of their fear, their weakness, their helplessness, but also in all of their sin and rebellion and hard-heartedness, Jesus looks at this mass of humanity, sees it as it is, and he is moved to compassion. You and I should be picturing ourselves in the crowd right now. If this describes you, if you're harassed and helpless this morning, if you are fearful and anxious, if you are doubtful and don't know what the future holds, Jesus Jesus sees you. Jesus knows he knows all that you face. If, if you are hard-hearted and rebellious, as, as the Bible describes the people of Israel, stiff-necked, kind of shaking your fist at God, not, not sure that you want to open yourself up to the work that He wants to do in your life, Jesus sees you. Jesus knows. And the look in His eyes is compassion. He is moved to compassion over you. Jesus sees the crowds, and he says, he describes them this way. He says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And this is a this is a rich, a rich reference to multiple Old Testament texts, but 
especially relevant is Numbers chapter 27. In Numbers 27, verses 16 to 18, God leads Moses up onto a mountain to see the promised land. And he leads him up on a mountain to see the promised land because he cannot enter that promised land. He cannot go in because of his disobedience to God earlier in the story. Amazingly, the very reason that Moses was unfit to lead God's people into the promised land was because when he was confronted for two years at that time, uh, when he was confronted by this, uh, yes, harassed and helpless, but also very sinful and very rebellious and hard-hearted people of God, he did not react with compassion, but rather he reacted in anger. Remember when he was supposed to speak to the rock and it was going to produce this stream of water that was going to water the people of Israel? Instead, he became angry at the hard-heartedness of the people of God, and he struck the rock twice in anger. And for this reason, he was not fit to lead God's people into the promised land. So even in this tiny little reference, this connection, we're seeing Jesus is the greater Moses where Moses failed. Moses, like any human leader, looks at us and says, no, (laughs) this is no good. But Jesus looks at us and sees even more accurately how sinful, nasty, and messed up, and broken we are, and he has compassion. So Moses, looking at this promised land that he cannot enter, he says these words. He says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So Moses recognizes that he's not able to lead the people of God into the promised land, into God's rest, and someone else would have to do it. And so the Lord has Moses appoint Joshua. If you uh, have, have done your Bible study, you know that Joshua and Jesus are the same name. So in Hebrew, the name Jesus is Yeshua, uh, which we translated as Joshua. And we call him Jesus because the Greek version of Yeshua is Jesus, uh, which we pronounce Jesus. And so Jesus and Joshua, they're the same name. Um, Moses, uh, the Lord has Moses appoint Joshua to shepherd the people, his people, into the promised land. So you see, even just in this reference... While Moses was able to lead Israel out of a physical slavery in Egypt, he was not able to lead them out of slavery to their sin. Only Christ can do that. Also, in the same way, Joshua was able to lead the people of Israel into the physical promised land, but was not able to lead them into the true promised land of God's rest. Both of these guys, Moses and Joshua, Jesus is the one that they're pointing to. Jesus is the one through whom God actually accomplishes the work that he was starting in them. After seeing this crowd, having compassion on them, Jesus does something amazing. And this is where it starts to take the turn of what about us? What impact does this have on us? You see, Jesus turns, looking at this crowd, he turns to his disciples, to his followers, and he says, looking out at the crowd, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord would send laborers into his harvest. First thing I want to do is take a little bit of a closer look at what the Bible teaches about the basic idea of just people, human beings being a harvest. Um, This might be an unfamiliar idea to us. The basic idea is simple. I'm not a farmer, but I'm told if you're a farmer, you go into a field and you sow seed in a field. And those seeds grow up into plants, and then at just the right time, and farmers will tell you the timing is extremely important, um, at just the right time, you go and reap the harvest, and you bring in the harvest, and then you see what you got. You see the results of all these seeds that were planted. Well, Scripture presents humanity as a mixed harvest. Jesus presents this clearly in his parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, where he describes, he pictures the kingdom of God this way. He said it's like a farmer who plants wheat in a field. And then an enemy comes behind him at night and plants weeds in that same field. And then the farmer says, representing God in this case, the farmer says, let both grow up together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the the harvest is the idea that each person is one day going to be judged by God and held to account for their lives for good or for ill. 
So really, the harvest is a time of God's reckoning. For instance, if we go to Joel chapter 3, we see the famous valley of decision, if you're familiar with that passage, where a harvest is brought in at the end of time, and some of it is put into the winepress of God's wrath. So what we're really seeing is that the arrival of the kingdom of God through the person and work of Christ begins the harvest in humanity in the world. A time where the eternal destiny of all people will be determined by how they respond to Christ. So here's where things really start to get interesting. I want you to picture this with me. We get this beautiful picture of the transformative work that God is doing among us and in us. So first, every one of us is in the crowd. We're one of those faces in the crowd or in the harvest. And then the picture of the work that Jesus is doing that we get here is that Jesus is reaching in and taking us out of the harvest. And then he is remaking, reworking, and transforming us in some way to where he is then able to send us back into the harvest. No longer as just harassed and helpless, but as his representative to do his work as a laborer. Jesus is saying, you, my followers, are the agents through whom, who are going to go through the harvest, starting with Israel and then to all the nations. I don't want us to miss that our passage today is a call for us, for you and I, to see the crowd, to see the harvest the way that Jesus sees it. Some of us have grown callous and indifferent to the crowds of people around us. It's just reality. And sometimes the more people that you see and the more people that you're around, the more callous that you can become. That there are people around us who are harassed and helpless without God their Savior. David Platt says it this way. He says, We live in a world of approximately 7 billion people with the most liberal estimates labeling about one-third of those 7 billion as Christians. That leaves us more than 4.5 billion people without Christ. That's more than 4.5 billion people on a road that leads to an eternal hell. This is the condition of the lost. Do we realize the gravity of eternity? Do we sense the urgency? Do we see the world with the eyes of Jesus? We don't have time to play games with our lives or play games in the church. And we don't have time to waste our lives on the pursuits, pleasures, and possessions of this world when there is something infinitely more important for us to do. If that is you this morning, I pray that today would be a day of repentance, a day when God reopens your eyes to the people that are around you, to the condition of the world that is around you. A day when you ask God, you confess your callousness, and you ask Him to give you His eyes, to give you His heart for the people who are around you. But beyond this, there are truths in this passage that if we can see them the way that they really are, if we can get a picture of what God is doing with us, they can transform the way that you and I think about evangelism, disciple-making, and particularly our place in them. You see, there are many reasons beyond callousness as to why Christians are hesitant to step into the harvest as a laborer. See, often we feel incapable. It's not just that we're callous. We feel like we don't know what to do. We don't feel like we can do it. We feel incompetent. We think surely God would send somebody more competent than me into this harvest. There has to be someone else. Sometimes we feel unqualified by our sin and our shame. We feel like I can't possibly be the one to represent Christ. Have you seen my life? We're afraid of messing it up, afraid of failure and rejection. We're afraid of turning people off to Jesus. Well, Matthew 9 and 10 presents a picture of what God is doing with humanity that if we can only see that picture, we can finally understand why Jesus says at the end of this section, as he's sending these guys out, he says, have no fear. Have no fear. I pray he does that in your life. We can truly represent our Savior in the world. We can enter the harvest with all the danger, all the opposition and risk involved, and we can do so without fear. So if that feels unobtainable, if that feels like it's said to someone else and not to you, this is for you. These words of Christ are for you. There's four things I want you to see from this. The first is that God has given us an astonishing responsibility. 
This is not just a heavy task that we have to feel guilty if we don't do it. This is a responsibility that gives purpose and dignity and importance to your life that is mind-blowing. You see, Jesus delegates the work of bringing in the harvest to his followers. So, I know we've heard this a hundred times, so we're looking at the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You should share the gospel, all of this. But I want us to take a step back and try to see it with fresh eyes, what's actually happening. You have Jesus, the Son of God, picture him, standing in front of this crowd. He's the second person of the Trinity. By him, all things were created, everything that exists. By him, all things are held together even as he's standing there at that moment, he is the perfect Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. He's the greater Moses who sees with compassion. He's the greater Joshua who lead his people to the promised land. He sees a crowd of people who are desperate for Jesus' ministry, and he turns to his followers and says, they really, really need me. I'm sending you. I'm sending you. I kind of picture the disciples responding the way that I want to respond, which is to say, uh, Jesus, you're, you're standing right here. You know, why, why don't you go? I feel like you do a better job than I would. Uh, why, why don't you take this one, okay? I'll stand behind you and, and kind of clap at the right times. You know, I'll be the hype man. But why don't you take this one, Jesus? I mean, why, why would he send us? Really? Why would he send us? This seems like a terrible plan. What if we mess it up? I mean, if this is the most important work in the history of the world, to take Jesus' work in ministry to the nations, to all people, why would he send us? Don't miss the significance of the fact that Jesus gives to his followers the most important task in the world. Another way of saying that is that Jesus gives his followers the responsibility of judging the world as his empowered representatives. This picture of the harvest is connected with judgment. And we see Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. He says, Do you not know, speaking to the church, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that you will judge angels? I feel like if Paul ask those questions here in our church this morning, I think many of us were just fun. Um, no, I, I wasn't aware of that one. That one kind of, uh, I missed that somewhere along the way. You see, we relegate passages like that to just sort of the pile of those cryptic verses. We don't really know what they mean because they're so astonishing it can't possibly be true, right? Surely we're missing something. But Matthew, uh, passages like our passage in Matthew help us see that that's exactly what's going on. You see, that's why Scripture says that God treats us as sons and daughters, not like servants that have no idea what their master's up to and what he's doing. And certainly not fans who are just sort of watching from the stands and, and applauding and cheering Jesus on as he does his work. No, we are sons and daughters inheriting the family business and being made into full partners in the work that God is doing in the world. That's what he's doing with us. Paul describes it as, he says, we are God's fellow workers. Have you ever been driving to work and just thought, yeah, I'm God's co-worker? It's true. You are a fellow worker, a fellow laborer along. You are authorized partners alongside our God and King in the work that he is doing in the world. As we continue in... Uh, Chapter 10, starting in verse 1, clearly if Jesus' followers are going to be given such a responsibility, they're going to need the authority to carry it out. They're going to need some help because they're just folks just like us. They don't have what they need to accomplish this mission. So we see in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction, the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas, who betrayed him. So Jesus gives his followers the spiritual authority they will need 
spiritual authority over the demonic world and over everything that afflicts and oppresses us as human beings, we'd be well served here to take a step back and look at the authority that Jesus himself has. So if he's giving authority, what, what authority does he himself have? In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what does that mean? What authority, that authority was given to Jesus? Didn't Jesus, the Son of God, always have authority? Well, John Piper describes it this way. He explains it as he says, before the incarnation, God the Son existed with all authority. This is true. We know this. But the God-man, Jesus Christ, had not yet died for sinners, and the sentence of condemnation hanging over his people had not yet been stripped from Satan's hand by the shedding of Jesus' blood. But this is precisely, it is precisely the God-man, Jesus Christ, and the crucified and risen Savior, triumphant over sin and Satan, who is exalted to the right hand of God and installed as the Lord of the universe. And so now, get this, now as never before, God has put the rule of the universe and the mission of the church into the hands of a man. Jesus of Nazareth, Son of Mary, Son of God. I want you to catch the chain of command or the, the, the flow of authority here. The Son of God, who has all authority, humbles himself to become one of us to become a man, to become a human being. And then God the Father gave all authority to the God-man, Jesus Christ, and Jesus gives to his followers all authority necessary to fulfill his mission as his representatives, as co-laborers in his harvest. You do not just have the commission of a great responsibility to carry out the work of Christ to the nations. You have his authority. Theologian Reggie Kidd says this, he said, The first words in Matthew, which are literally a book of Genesis, indicate that he would have us understand that the human race's new genesis, or new beginning, takes place now in Jesus. And in the end, there is nothing that makes human beings more radiantly alive than reflecting the character of the God whose image they bear. Perhaps most importantly for us to understand Jesus' mission was not simply to undo the fall. You see, sometimes we mistakenly look at the history of the world and we think, well, God made Adam and Eve, everything was perfect the way it should be. They sinned, and the rest of human history is just trying to get back to where we started. That's not what is happening here. Jesus has accomplished something far more than that. Through Jesus, God's purpose for humanity through Jesus, has made us into a new creation, something far greater than Adam and Eve. Just like the, the glorious passage in Ephesians 2 says, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, a resurrection, and it says, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know where Christ is sitting right now? At the right hand of God with all power and authority given to him? Paul says you're seated with him in the heavenly places. The church is the new humanity who is seated with Christ in authority where we will reign together with him over the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. So in this life there is no opposition there is no resistance or spiritual power or stronghold that you will face in your labor in the harvest that you don't have authority over through Jesus. So God has given us the responsibility. He's given us the authority to carry it out. And then he sends his followers out as his representatives. As his authorized representatives in the world. Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. And there's a couple of important Old Testament connections here that help us understand What's going on? So numbers are often important in the Bible, not because they have some intrinsic or kind of magical value in and of themselves, as I understand it, but because they serve as markers in the text that help us connect different narratives to each other, to understand how one helps explain the other. And the interconnectedness of scriptures is a beautiful, beautiful thing to behold. The important number here is the number 12. Um, so you're familiar, there's the 12 tribes of Israel, and so there's 12 disciples sent to the 12 tribes. 
Well, there's this beautiful passage in Ezekiel 34 where the Lord confronts the shepherds of Israel or the leaders of the 12 tribes for not taking care of the sheep, not taking care of God's people. And these are the words he says. He says, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So with these words, God rejects the shepherds or the leaders of Israel, these unfaithful shepherds, and then he says these words. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and strong I will destroy. I will feed them justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. First, just what, what a beautiful picture of the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. In Jesus, God himself sought us out. Jesus, God in Jesus, has humbled himself and come down to us and sought us who were lost out. But beyond that, this is the same idea of, the, of humanity being this great harvest to be judged, that all human beings will be judged based on their response to the person and work of Christ. And we see that in that work, Jesus turns to 12 new under-shepherds and sends them out to the 12 tribes of Israel to represent him, to represent God and his care for his people. So Jesus sends the disciples at this moment only to the 12 tribes of Israel, and again, we realize that that was for this time and place, and by the end of Matthew, we receive our instructions, which is to take that same gospel to all the nations, to all the world. But far more important, and this is what has the power to change the way that we see our lives, far more important is the discovery that God is in the business of equipping and empowering his followers to be his representatives and to do his work in the world. That is what God is in the business of. There's another Old Testament connection here that's instructive to us, and that is uh, from another story in Numbers 13, and that's the 12 spies that are being sent into the Promised Land. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with the old Vacation Bible School song. It's There were 12 spies, and 10 were bad, and 2 were good. Um, well, that's what this is referring to. So um, the disciples were sent out in pairs. They're listed in pairs here in the text. It's the only place that that's... Uh, the case in the New Testament. Um, they're listed out in pairs of two, the, the pairs of two that they were sent out in. Um, and here's the parallel. Here's the connection. Is that when God had Israel send out the 12 spies into the land of Canaan, God had already given them the land. It was theirs. God said, this land is yours. You just have to go in and possess it. In the same way, similarly, the whole earth is already under the authority and reign of Christ. But we are sent as his representatives to claim that territory as his. So Jesus gives his followers the ability to represent him as a, as a proxy to the world. And this comes with it a massive amount of responsibility and authority. He says, he even goes so far as to say these words. He says, if they accept you, they accept me. If they reject you, they reject me. And if we're really honest, those words kind of freak us out. Because there's a lot of Christians running around that we don't want representing Christ to the world. There's a lot of people we can picture, including ourselves, really, really messing this up. And we're afraid that we'll mess it up. So again, we're forced to ask, why would Jesus do that? Why would he give us that kind of authority? Knowing what we are. Doesn't he realize who these guys are? Even these 12 disciples that he's sending out. One of them is Peter, who denies him three times. One of them is Thomas, who had so little faith that he said, I'll never believe that Jesus is raised from the dead unless I can stick my own fingers in the holes in the hands of the risen Jesus. One of them is Judas, who betrays him. Doesn't Jesus realize what humanity is? This, 
This is the humanity that Jesus is authorizing to represent him to a lost and dying world. Doesn't he realize what a mess we'd make of representing Christ for the next 2,000 years and counting? Why would he do this? Well, for those of you who are parents, I have a two-year-old son. His name is Jack. And one of the things I often do with Jack is I ask him to help me around the house. One thing that happens on a regular basis is we'll finish a meal, and I'll ask Jack to help me clean up the kitchen, clean up the kitchen table and the floor. And if you have children, if you have ever had children, you realize you don't ask a two-year-old to help you because you need help. That's not why. Jack is the one who made the mess in the first place, and when Jack tries to clean it up, he makes the mess worse. If, if, if all I wanted was for the kitchen to be clean, if that was my goal, if I said, my purpose right now is I just want this kitchen to be clean, the best thing I could do is send Jack to his room and say, stay out of my way until I'm finished. But I don't do that. Why? Why don't I do that? I don't because I love my son. You see, I don't just want the kitchen to be clean. I want Jack to become the kind of person who is capable of cleaning a kitchen. You see, because I love my son, I'm doing everything in my power to make him into something greater than he currently is, to help him grow and mature into a man who can do things that his current little toddler self can't even imagine, the responsibilities that he will one day have. But I do. You see, he doesn't understand that one day he may have a wife and children of his own. He doesn't understand that he will have a vocation given to him by God and hard, complicated work to do in this world. And all of the growth and maturing that is necessary to be able to be the kind of man that can do that, but I do. And I'm trying to help him grow up to be a man who can take care of himself and others and make the world a better place. And I know that it starts with asking him to help me clean up the kitchen when I could do a far, far better job by myself. It's because I love my son. God is making his followers into something that we are currently not even capable of imagining. He is making us into people who can reflect his character and holiness in ways that we can't even picture. He's making us into people who can reign over the world with justice and mercy, and he is doing it because he is good and he loves us. Because he is making us sons and daughters who are actually like him, and he's giving us work to do that will transform us into those people. You see, so often it's doing the work that Christ has set before us that, actually, that he actually uses to transform us into the kind of people capable of doing that work. He stretches us with the things that he calls us to do and the responsibilities that he gives us, things that we don't feel prepared for, we don't feel equipped for, we don't feel qualified for. God uses those things to show us, I've provided everything you need, and I am transforming you into the kind of person who can do these things. As we continue in our, our last verses here, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. As Jesus sends out his disciples, he shows us that he is entrusting the announcement of his kingdom to his followers. That message that John the Baptist started out with in his ministry, that message that Jesus proclaimed in his ministry, he entrusts it to us. If we do not carry it to the nations, it will not be carried to the nations. God sends his followers as his representatives to announce the arrival of his kingdom, and there's no plan B. There's no backup plan. We are it, no matter how unqualified and incapable we feel, he will give us what we need. In ancient times, when a kingdom was taken over by a new king, there was no internet for people to find out what had happened. 
They couldn't follow along with wars online like we can today. So when a king took over a new kingdom, messengers had to be sent to every remote town and village to announce to the village and to notify the populace that they are now under new management. I want us to think for a moment, just picture the job of these messengers. You see, when he would enter a village, he knew the king had already done the conquering. The messenger is not there to fight a battle or to try to win a war. The war is already won. The messenger is just responsible for making the announcement, letting people know the new kingdom is here. Also, the king has given the messenger the message he must proclaim. He doesn't have to make it up for himself or figure out what to say. The, me- the king gives him the message. And finally, the, the messenger is imbued with the authority of the king. And however people respond to the messenger is taken as a response to the king himself. So something that could often happen in this time, if people were not happy with a new king having taken over, sometimes they would kill the messenger. You've heard that before, don't shoot the messenger. It happened. Messengers were shot. And messengers knew that going in. But he also knows that if he is mocked or beaten or killed, it is not considered as done only to him. It is considered as having been done to the king himself. And the king will respond accordingly. So how do we fulfill our responsibility to judge the world, as we heard Paul say? How do we obey the call to go into the harvest and work it? How do we, res- how do we represent Christ to the world? We do so through announcing the reign of Christ the King. And calling all people to submit to him. We do so through announcing the arrival of his kingdom and calling all people to enter into God's kingdom, enter into God's rest. And we do so as the church by modeling the presence of God's kingdom in our lives, in our families, in our community, and inviting all people to become part of that family. These four points that God has given us this amazing responsibility He's given us all the authority we need to carry it out, and he's imbued us with the dignity of being his representative to the world. He's entrusted us with announcing his kingdom. These points serve as the backdrop for, and they make sense of, all the instructions Jesus goes on to give his disciples. So as he's sending them out, in chapter 10, he goes on to give them, give them instructions. For example, he tells his followers, as you go, expect opposition. This is going to be a dangerous work. And you will be hated by my, for my name's sake. Expect resistance. He also says, this, this is not a sprint, guys. This is a marathon. And you have to endure to the end. In verse 22, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It reminds me of one of my favorite verses in Revelation 2.10. It says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He tells us we should be Like Christ, we should be like our master, become like him in our character and in our nature and in our desires, but also that we will be hated like Christ. In verse 25, he says, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. But if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, which means Lord of dung, how much more will they malign those of his household? And then... the end of this list of instructions, he comes to these words and he says, have no fear. Have no fear. He says it will cost you everything, but you will gain so much more. You represent God as his son and his daughter. With his full blessing and support, the Father, the Father has your back. The God of the universe has your back. And he says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. As we close. Recently I had a phone conversation with another church planter. And he'd caught hold of this vision for equipping and empowering ordinary believers to be disciple makers. To, to enter the harvest as laborers. And he was, he was so excited. And he's a talented guy. Talented, experienced, smart guy, loves the Lord. But in our conversation on the phone, he said to me, look, I've, I've read a lot of books about it, and I've, I've learned so much, all this awesome stuff. I've, I've settled on what I think are just the right Bible study methods and discipleship processes and you know, ways of engaging the harvest and reaching neighbors. 
but I haven't actually started doing anything yet. And he asked me, are there any books you'd recommend reading? Are there any resources that you found that really help you bring it all together and just sort of make it happen? And, and I just told him, I said, I told this brother, I said, look, God, God has already given you everything that you need to fulfill this commission. In fact, he's going to task you with equipping and empowering people who, who don't have your education, haven't read those books, they don't have your experiences, and they, they have everything that they need given to them by God. There's only one thing that you're missing, and that is just taking the simple first step of obedience. So as we talk about the harvest, as we talk about disciple-making, as we talk about looking at the crowds around you, what is your next step? What is your step of obedience? What step of obedience into the harvest is God calling you to take? Do you know the names of your neighbors? Have you had them into your home? Your coworkers? do you know if they're followers of Christ? Have you built relationships with them? Have you had compassion on them? Is God calling you to be part of a church plant? Is God calling you to take his gospel, his, the, the announcement of his kingdom to the ends of the earth? We assume that for most of you that means that you're going to be called to come and plant with us in Clemens. Um, but I'm aware there may be some exceptions. Some of you might end up staying. How can God use you where you live, where you work, where you play? your family, your friends, your neighbors, the people, the harvest that God has sent you into. God has given you a great and honorable responsibility and has given you everything you need to do it. And he says, have no fear. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind to us. Father, you have looked into the harvest you have seen us with all of, our, all of our weakness, our fear, all of our sinfulness and rebellion and nastiness. And you have looked on us with compassion. And you have said, I myself will humble myself. I will come live among them, walk among them. I will seek them out. Lord, you have sought us out. Lord, for some here today, this may be the day that Jesus reaches out to you and says, I have sought you out. Listen to him. Listen to your Savior. For those of you who have been loved and taken out of this harvest into the loving embrace in the kingdom of God, I pray that you would take up the mantle of responsibility as laborers sent into the harvest that you would see the beauty of what God is doing in and through you and the person that he is making you into. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.